Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Christian Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. We're here today with our, our special friend and colleague, uh, Dr. J.P. Moreland, who's Distinguished Professor of Philosophy here at Talbot. Uh, we've had him on several times before. He keeps producing new books. Uh, That's right. And so we've, we, it's a great opportunity to have him on. J.P., thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate you it's taking always, time. Oh, listen, it's my pleasure to be with you, brothers, and I love your show. J.P., you are the first guest we've had three times, so that makes you pretty special. Well, thank you. I feel a lot of love right now. You know, you, you're best known for your work as a Christian philosopher, apologist for the faith. Uh, but in your newest book, Finding Quiet, uh, there's another side to you that I don't think a lot of people know about. Uh, and I, I so appreciate your, your vulnerability uh, and the risk you took in writing this most recent book called Finding Quiet. Uh, so tell us first, I think... What what are what are the events in your life that uh, gave rise to you to you writing this book? Uh, I know it goes yes. back goes back a ways, uh, but there were a yes. couple. I mean, there were a couple of really seminal episodes in your life um, that you talk about in the book uh, that gave rise to you writing it. Yes, just to quickly give a little context, I was born with a genetic predisposition towards uh, general anxiety. My mom. And that whole side of the family uh, was uh, really, really anxious. And so I, I went through my life, and I was kind of high-strung, but I, it never uh, made me dysfunctional. However, at the end of the school year in 2003, um, I had what, what I call a nervous breakdown. I uh, woke up. Uh, the day after graduation was finished, and I had a sabbatical in front of me, and I woke up at 2.30 in the morning, and I was sweating, and my heart was pounding, and I didn't know it, but I was having a panic attack, and I, and I started having panic attacks, and I was my body was in a fairly uh, continual state of anxiety for seven months. Uh, except for when I slept at night. And uh, it happened to me again 10 years later in 2013. Uh, it, it just hit me out of nowhere and lasted five months. And so, mm. uh, guys, I, 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 I kind of purposed in my heart that I wanted to do everything I could uh, for this not to happen again. And there are never any guarantees on this, but I did a tremendous amount of uh, research and, and study and practical application. And uh, uh, given that I knew so that anxiety and depression are the number one uh, psychological mental health problem in America today, and that I, I know what it's like to be racked with anxiety and depression that I thought that I would share with my brothers and sisters some of the things that helped me. But that's what motivated me. Uh, Scott, I think it was those two nervous breakdowns that I had that lasted seven and five months respectively. 
Hey, JP, you wrote a book previously on kind of the virtue of happiness. Was there a process yeah. in your mind and experience where you had to overcome maybe embarrassment or potential shame to be willing to share this story with people? Because there's so often a stigma that's associated with depression from people who just don't really understand. What was that process like for you to become public and even share this? Well, that's a good word. I, um, I, I really do understand and respect people who, who fear uh, sharing this. I, I really get that. Uh, in my case, I, it, I just didn't care. I, I think it was because I was raised in a blue-collar family outside of Kansas City in a little town called Grandview, and nobody put up with people that had their nose up in the air. Uh, if you know what I mean, that kind of stuff didn't go well. So I, I kind of have been a pretty open person. And uh, I, I wanted, through my own kind of revelation of my own story, uh, for two things to happen, Sean. Number one, I wanted people to know uh, that I understood what they were going through if they read the book or give it to somebody. And And the second one was that you don't need to be embarrassed or ashamed in sharing your struggles with other people. We're all so broken. I mean, have you ever heard of the fall? Uh, it's actually true. And uh, we're broken people. And we all are broken in one way or the other. So I didn't feel a tremendous amount of shame or guilt uh, in, in, in sharing this with people. JP, let me take that question Sean had one step further. I know you've you've yes. talked you've talked about this stuff uh, that you've gone through a lot at churches. Uh, yes. You know, and you've you know you did a lot of speaking on this. You know, once you decided to go public with it before you wrote the book, and I know right. So in in some church circles, you've been well. This has been very well received, but in others, not so much. Uh, tell yes. us a little bit about the different reactions that you've gotten when you have when you have gone public with this in a local church yes. setting. Well, I think I think the good news is that <clears throat> there are an awful lot of people out there uh, who are are suffering from this and are are hungry for hope. That they want hope that they can get well, and they want some very practical suggestions, and so. Uh, how to get there. And so that's the good news. Um, the, the, I think the bad news is that I believe that medications are an important part of a solution for some people and that it's important to check with your doctor or a psychiatrist and see if medication might be for you. And I, I think that that's biblically, uh, I give a biblical basis for that in the book. I don't think it's not having faith or not relying on God. I think it's just taking medicines. I would never recommend somebody take a medication and not do other things like counseling and certain spiritual practices. But, but as a combined package, it can be helpful. I think, I think, Scott, other people are a little bit concerned about psychology and, and counseling and uh, I, I certainly think that it's best to get a Christian therapist, if you at all can, of course. 
And I think some people are a little bit afraid of what are called uh, spiritual formation practices because they think they're Catholic and, and, and they're not biblically rooted. And so those are, I think, the three issues that cause people to, to kind of look uh, unfavorably at this whole approach. And what I do in the book is I give a, a kind of a brief uh, biblical basis uh, for, for these sorts of things. So, so take us back to the beginning. You described how, I think you said 2003, and then about a decade later, kind of fallen right. into a, a bout of depression, anxiety attack. How did you get out of this abyss? And what did you learn through this process of research that can help other people? Oh, man, that's, that's a great question. Um, like I said, I do think the counseling I got and, and some of the medication I got helped me. But um, I th- th- there were two things that, uh, were, were, that, that were really kind of major in my mind that got me out of this and have kind of really put me on a much more solid footing. And the first one is to inventory your life and get rid of all the stress you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Now, you can't get rid of all of it, but, but stress is, is enemy number one for those of us who, who, who are suffering with an inclination towards anxiety and depression. And you want to try to see if you can get rid of things that you don't really need to be doing. I, the second one was the, the, the role of habit in dealing with anxiety and depression. Uh, in the book, I, I mentioned that uh, anxiety uh, is partly a learned habit. It's not entirely, but it's significantly. In the literature, uh, they say that a lot of it is is a, a, a set of uh, uh, grooves in the brain and in, in the nervous system and heart muscle uh, that uh, tr- are triggered by negative self-talk and, and, and events that uh, are sort of habituated inside you. And what you have to do is you have to start replacing those habits with health, peace-inducing habits. And uh, that takes time. I think it takes about three months of, of failure <laughs> And of hard work to, with the spirit's guidance, to replace habit the good habits with uh, over the bad ones, just like learning to play golf or anything. But it, the, the role of habit formation and being patient with myself in the early stages of forming new ways of thinking and feeling w- was just a game changer for me. JP, let me take this a little bit further. It- it sounds to me like what you're suggesting is that these practices actually have the the capacity to re reshape your brain. Is, yes. is that what you're saying? I am indeed. Let's spell um, that out a little bit further. Yeah, our feelings and our memories and all those things are not in the brain; they're in the soul. And just like a Music is not in a CD or some kind of a recording instrument because uh, you can hold the CD up to your ear and you can't hear anything. 
But uh, what is in the CD are grooves. And if the CD is not damaged, and if it's placed in the right retrieval system, then it will trigger sound music in the room. Now, in the same way, uh, my uh, anxious sensations and negative self-talk and all that, uh, my thoughts and feelings aren't in my brain, but there are grooves in the brain that uh, when triggered, automatically produce fear, worry, and, and negative ways of talking about yourself. And um, in, the, in the book, Finding Quiet, I, I list four specific practices that I discovered from reading. I, I must have read 40 books on this. I mean, I just mm. did a lot of research. And I boiled what I found down to four major practices. But they are all they all assume, Scott, what you said, uh, and 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 what they assume is what is called neuroplasticity, that by changing the way you think, you can literally change your brain grooves so that your neurons are no longer grooved to automatically trigger anxiety. Instead, they're grooved to automatically see the glass half full and trigger peaceful emotions instead of negative ones. They've actually done brain scans on people who have had anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorders, and they've told them for three weeks, practice thinking these thoughts instead of the ones you're thinking. And when people start doing this, they don't believe the thoughts they're practicing thinking, but they're still going to do it anyway. And lo and behold, after three weeks of this, they do a brain scan and, and Scott and Sean, their brains are restructured and are healthier than they were three weeks ago. And so, yes, you, this is hopeful. Now I want, my, I want the listeners to hear this. This is a word of great hope to you because if your anxiety and depression is something that you're a constant worrier or you're constantly down, you have the power, if you will practice certain exercises, to regroove your brain and heart muscle because it has neurons in it too, uh, so that they are working with you and not against you. And thank God that this is not locked in and we're condemned the rest of our lives to have to be like this. That's a word of great hope. That really is good news. And I can imagine m myself included, people listening that have wrestled with this to greater and lesser degrees can feel such a sense of hope and empowerment in their lives by certain practices and the strength of the Holy Spirit not yes. just condemned to dealing with this level of depression that's debilitating necessarily in a lifelong matter. There's hope is really what, what you're saying. Uh, on yes, the, I am. On the flip side of that, let me ask you this. You comment that one of your main frustrations with God is that he seems to be a, quote, no-show at certain times right. in your mm -hmm. life when you need him most. Can you explain what you mean by this? And especially coming from a philosopher and apologist, you know, I'd yes. love to hear what you yeah. think. 
Well, Larry Crabb wrote a book on this, and he he starts off with a story, and he says, you know, uh, there have been times when I've been late to an appointment, and I have got to get to see this person, and I pray for a parking spot, and lo and behold, God opens up a parking spot right in front of the place where I need to get in there. And he says, those are wonderful. But he says there, there is a little boy in our church, or was, that was uh, four years old. Uh, he was suffering for a year with a horribly painful uh, a terminal disease. And it wasn't just that the little guy was dying. It was that he was in pain. And the church held prayer vigils, and uh, we, there was more prayer bathed over this little, little boy, and and absolutely nothing happened. Not only was his life not saved, but his pain was not uh, alleviated. So Crab says God was a no-show. I mean, where was he? Now, when I mean God is a no-show, a couple of things that I want the, the listeners to hear— I, uh, number one, what I mean by that is that there are times in one's life when it looks like it would be in God's own best interests uh, for his cause and in the interests of his brothers and his children for him to manifest his presence. That's what I mean by showing up and perform intervening in a situation. We all know when God does that, how the word spreads throughout the church and other people and how encouraging it is. Uh, there are times when, for the life of me, God doesn't do that, and it's very hard to understand why he didn't show up, and I mean by that, manifest his presence and intervene. I don't mean he's not there and that he might be working, but that's still a frustration. The second point is that um, by expressing this frustration, I'm in good company because I think it's something like uh, almost 30% of the psalms are what are called individual or communal lament psalms. By that, they are psalms that are praying and complaining to God about the, the way he is, about he doesn't seem to be keeping his covenant. He 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 let this happen and 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 why and uh they're they're actually speaking against god and 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 calling him into question to be honest with you and if you remember this was the hymn book of of israel uh it's a little odd that 25 to 30% of their hymns were complaints and um it, it's not that uh, this is the third point. It's not that God wasn't there and didn't have, obviously, some larger purpose for, for, for letting this happen and not intervening. That's got to be true. But I don't think it's good to start there when you are disciplined. When you're hurting and you're crying out to God, I think what you need to do is tell him, and express your emotions honestly. If you're angry at God or whatever it is, you tell him. And uh, I have biblical roots basis for that in the lament psalms. Now, 
the goal is not to stay there. Uh, in, in the last chapter of the book, I, I give examples of different ways of expressing your frustration with God, who seems to apparently not to be interested in, or in helping you. Now, the, the goal is to get back to where um, in your gut and in your heart, you, you have had restoration uh, in believing that God really was with you and had a plan that was for your overall good in the long run. But you can't start by just saying, I believe that, when deep in your heart you don't. That's going to make matters worse. So I'm recommending, uh, along with the Psalms, that people just be honest with God. That's all and express their frustration, even though uh, this is insanity. We all know that God is good. But if you don't really honestly believe that deep down in your feelings, then you have to be honest and express it with the goal of getting back to where that's a part. You, you deepen your trust in God by doing that. Well, it's not like we're hiding, actually hiding our feelings from an omniscient God to begin with. Um, <laughs> you think, you think yeah, yeah, maybe prob- he knows prob- what's going yeah, on? <laughs> I think so. In fact, one Highly of my— Highly likely. <laughs> one of my favorite books on, this, on these lament psalms is entitled, Nobody Says Please in the Psalms, uh, uh, which oh, I think ca- captures that flavor really nicely. Yes, um, yes. And, and I think it's it's important, I think, for our listeners to know, too, that all of those lament psalms do end on a note, a uh, confession of trust. Yes. Uh, and so it, it, lament, it, 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 it's crucial, I think, your your point, that they, they lead with lament. Right. Uh, they lead with being honest about their feelings and where they are. Right. Uh, and it is, I mean, I think if, this this is where I think one, one of the things I've tried to do with these lament psalms is actually read them out loud. And to try and rep, yes, try and replicate yes. the facial expression and the tone of voice that the wow, psalmist would, would use in this, and I, I don't think it doesn't take much to imagine. I think some of the psalmists actually screaming this at God. Oh, absolutely! Um, but it does it does end on a it always ends on a note of trust. And yes. I, I've often wondered, you know, initially when you read that, that sounds like Pollyanna. Uh, it just yeah. sounds like they're just they. they you know, they got all this honest emotion, and I said, "But okay, I trust God." End of story. The right. glass, therefore, the glass. And I don't think that's it, but I think it's no. this, this is deep at a very deep level. They said what, what you what you affirm is that we we know even if when we don't feel it, we know that God is good, and we know that there right. may be reasons that you know that He's not intervening at least in the way we would expect. Uh, right, for, for, and we, I think deep down we know that that's true, and that's that's right. the affirmation of trust that I think colors a lot of the, the lament and gives us the freedom actually to to be open and honest with God about how well, we're feeling. You are just so on the money here, uh, uh, Scott. Uh, I just couldn't agree with you more. And in the last chapter, I make the point that that the goal of this is not to stay there and lament it's to move back to reaffirming uh deep in your soul god's goodness and his presence but you don't want to do that prematurely you want to be honest to work through 
how you're feeling, but the goal is to get there. And I think you're absolutely right about that. Yeah, and I think sometimes we, since we read the, the lament psalms all in, in one sitting, and they yes. were written, they were all written, I think, in the aftermath of what they had, what the psalmist had been through, reflecting on that. Sometimes we don't, we, I think we don't recognize that it, ta- it may have taken time for that person to get to that confession of trust and have it be really heartfelt. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, JP, let me, let me ask you for some specifics here for people, like what it might look like right. in their, their, their daily life. You have talk about relabeling, refocusing, you know, reframing. Yeah. What would this just look like in practice for somebody in their daily life to start implementing yeah. these ideas? Oh man, you guys, these questions are so good. I, I, at the end of the book, I have a, uh, a, a very small brief chapter wrapping it all up where I actually describe what a day might look like uh, in practicing these. And we don't have time to go through uh, kind of the four major things that I spend a lot of time on. Uh, uh, but uh, let me give, let me talk about one of them. Uh, and uh, it's the one that you mentioned. It, it, and it's uh, thoroughly biblical. Uh, it's uh, called the four-step solution. And it, 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 it's what you do with negative self-talk. And the problem with negative self-talk is that it's so habitual that it, it is almost subconscious. Uh, a lot of times you'll be saying things to yourself, I'm never going to get well. Uh, I'm weak. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm not like other people. Uh, everybody else has got it good. I don't. Why, why am I this way? Uh, I always make mistakes and, 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 and so on. Uh, and so uh, you end up anxious and depressed and you don't know why. So, so you get up in the morning and you ask the Lord to be with you during the day in the sense of uh, Psalm 139, uh, 24 to 26, Lord, uh, please search me and, and know me inside. It, would you examine me and come to know my, the thoughts in me that are anxiety producing? And would you uh, lead me in, a, in the way of, of shalom or peace or flourishing righteousness and help me to become aware of these? And so you go about your day and even if you if you have 10 minutes in the morning, you might just relax and invite the Lord to help you become sensitive to any, are you dreading your day? Are you anticipating things that might happen? And so if you catch us a negative self-talk, uh, I don't think I can make it through the day. The first thing that you do is you you relabel this and say, wait a minute, this has got nothing to do with reality. This is just a habit I'm in. I'm just, a, this is a bad habit. I'm not paying any attention to you. Now, the second thing you do is that you reframe the thought. And I, I give in the book, I think it's something like 12, uh, 10 to 12 thought distorters. And these are ways that our thoughts are distorted. Like you might 
um, engage in what's called all or nothing thinking. If you do something wrong, you tell yourself, you know what, I always mess things up. I just never get it right. Well, that's that's distortion. And so what you do is you say, you're a brain message, that's all you are. I recognize that you are just a all or nothing thinking and you're nothing but a bad habit. So I'm not gonna get down in the mud and try to argue with you and spend time telling you why you're wrong because they've discovered that if you spend time obsessing and wrestling with these negative self-talks, except in the early stages of when you start beginning to have them, uh, but if they become habits, it's no longer fruitful. What you need to do in step three is to refocus and get into what's called flow. And that means to just focus your attention away from that thought and get wrapped up into something that you lose track of time. Uh, an example, I never read novels, but when I had my second breakdown, Scott there drove all the way to my house and brought me some novels that were espionage novels about a guy named Mitch Rapp. Well, I, I, I started reading those darn things and I got hooked on them. They were so good. Well, if I was having a negative self-talk, I'd pick that sucker up and I'd read it for 10 minutes or 15. Before you knew it, that negative self-talk no longer had power over me. It might be checking your favorite sports team online. It could be checking your email. It, it, it could be uh, going and reading the psalm. It could be anything that allows you to turn away from it and really get absorbed in something else for you know, it's early on, I needed 20 minutes or so, but I got down to like five. Uh, and then at the end of the time, you you evaluate and see, how did I do on this? And what happens over time is that you take the power out of that negative self-thought and replace it with a positive one. You'll fail in the beginning, and I give some tips on this because you're trying to reform a new habit. But that's one practice that you can begin your day with and you can ask the Lord to help you be sensitive throughout the day to when you're doing that and then step aside for 10 minutes and practice uh, this four-step solution. JP, thank you for the, <clears throat> the specifics on that. That's really helpful. And I think you, you, read, you read some of the right stuff because I don't think Mitch Rapp ever engaged in negative self-talk. Um, <laughs> uh, no, he didn't. But this, is, this has been incredibly helpful. And I think for our listeners, it's really important that you know that, uh, you know, JP is an incredibly accomplished scholar, philosopher, author, teacher, uh, and yet has had these debil debilitating episodes with anxiety uh, and depression for for some time has been a been a battle that he's dealt with for a long time. Uh, praise God that you're getting on top of it, uh, and with yes. with these practices, with medication, uh, it's very encouraging. It give it gives tons of hope, I think, to people. And I think for our listeners, it's really important to know if this is your if this is what your life looks like, you are not alone. Uh, in fact, yes. you're part you're part of a pretty well populated group, uh, and yes. that there's there's hope. Uh, there's way there's ways to get out get out from get out of this abyss of depression and anxiety. And the the book Finding Quiet, 
uh, subtitled My Story of Overcoming Anxiety and the Practices that Brought Peace, is more about the practices. It's not really an autobiography, uh, but it, your, your story sort of frames it at the beginning and the end. But the book is all about the, pra- the practices that helped you get on top of this. And I think this will, yes, be, that's right. this will be an invaluable contribution. I'm so grateful for your, your courage and vulnerability to, uh, to write this down, to be, to be open about your struggles. I, I suspect that there are a whole lot of people that are going to find an awful lot of hope out of this. Well, thank you, brothers, for having me, and I appreciate the show. Well, thanks so much for coming on with us. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. J.P. Moreland, and his book, Finding Quiet, to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.